Great. So Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Great. Well, thank you, Fee. And let me add my uh, welcome to Michael's. It's great to be able to welcome you here this morning, especially if this is your first time with us. And I'd like to start by asking you, have you ever wondered what kind of person you are becoming? Now, I think it's a question uh, that I imagine many of us might have thought about at some point in our life. And it's something that maybe we'd be quite concerned about. That's why if you Google books about changing lifestyles or self-help, there are now hundreds of resources on offer to us in order for us to become the best version of ourselves. I was listening this week to a podcast called The High Performance Podcast. It interviews high performers, mostly from the world of sport, to show how they have become the best version of themselves. But what will you be like in 10 years, in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, or if you're still in group groups here today, 70 or 80 years, how are the decisions that you're making day to day going to impact in later life? How is your personality changing? How is your temperament altering as you face the world day after day? Maybe those questions are questions that scare you. You've noticed that you're becoming a little bit jaded with life. You struggle to enjoy the good things of this world. Rather than growing to be someone who you want to be, you seem to just be plodding along. You envision the future, and it's not a pretty picture. Or maybe you feel really excited by what you can become. You've got healthy new habits on the go. You're raring and ready for every day. You know exactly where you want to be in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years from now. You're full of optimism and enthusiasm for life. But what happens when the enthusiasm dwindles? When the optimism and the new habits become the norm and boring? Well, on Sunday mornings, uh, at the minute, we're going through Romans chapter 8, as Michael's reminded us, and it's a chapter full of great truths to remember as we wait for Jesus' return. Romans 8, over the last four weeks, has hopefully given us assurance as to who we are. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned, because in Jesus we are declared instead righteous verse 14 have a look down at it Paul says um, well Paul says somewhere for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God 
The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Those in Jesus are sons of God. We are heirs, not slaves. We enjoy intimate relationship with our Father rather than living in fear. And, very, and last week, as Michael's reminded us, chapter 8, verse 18, we saw Paul make a very large claim. He said, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We're waiting for a glorious future that is immeasurable. Paul doesn't diminish the suffering. He's someone who's well aware of what it looks like to suffer for Christ and also in his body. But despite that, he can still say that the glory that will be revealed is infinitely greater. If you weren't around for any of the sermons in Romans 8, then I encourage you to catch up online. They're all on our website or the talks. Have a listen to them. In the suffering and waiting, though, that we've been seeing, creation groans for the children of God to be revealed. And as we move on to our short passage that has just been read to us, we're picking up right where we left off last week. As we unpack these verses, we're going to be given more assurance as to who we are if we are people who trust Jesus. We're going to be given encouragement to keep going as we suffer and wait as we see that there is growth happening for those who love Jesus. There's a simple outline on the inside of your notice sheet that you were given when you came in, if you'd like to take notes. And do keep Romans 8 uh, open as we go through it. But before we dive into our passage, let's pray to our Heavenly Father again and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is good and true. Please, by your spirit, help us to understand it this morning. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and help us to rejoice in him more. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what does the Christian life involve as we suffer and wait? Well, firstly, the Spirit intercedes, with us, intercedes for us. Have a look down at verse 26. Verse 26 says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Now, verse 26 gives us a potential threat there to our assurance, doesn't it? We are weak, Paul says. We don't know what to pray for. In what sense is that true? What don't the Romans know and so therefore can't pray for? Well, one option for them is that there is a big gap in their understanding as to what God is doing in the world. The church in Rome doesn't understand what is going on in the world, what our Heavenly Father is doing. God is so big. So how can we know what his plans are? How can we know what to pray for? And you can see why that could impact their confidence or their assurance. It's like if you've ever been super late for a train, you get into the train station with barely 30 seconds until your train pulls away. You glance briefly at the departure board as you're running down the platform to try and catch your train. You're hoping that the train is leaving from the same platform because you just can't see it on the board. So you're sprinting down the gangway, jump through the train doors that close right behind you. 
At that point, you've got no idea whether or not you're on the right train or not. You don't have the information or the knowledge available to you. So you find a seat, you look down, and you have that nervous weight. This happened to me quite a lot. Um, and what I did at that point was I sort of looked around and I tried to convince myself, these guys look like they're going to the same place as me, you know? <laughs> now, that was useless. Um, but the way ends. The confidence comes back, firstly, as the train pulls off in the right direction. And then when you hear the tannoy coming on and confirming that you are indeed on the right train, going to the right place. You're filled with that confidence. Is that what Paul's saying here? That the Romans don't know what's going on, what God is doing in the world. They can't understand his plans, his purposes. They're trusting him blindly, so they don't know. Well, I don't think that can quite be the case. Because Paul's letter to the Romans has been pretty clear, had a pretty clear explanation of exactly what God is doing in the world. He's told them, chapter 1, that the gospel of Jesus is powerful to save. He's explained how by faith we can be brought into God's family. He's talked about that whole the Old Testament law fits into that. And in chapters 9 and 10, he's going to unpack the implication for God's people, how Jews and Gentiles will both be part of that people. The Romans know what God is doing in the world. We know what God is doing in the world. It's written down for us here in Scripture. So if if it's not a lack of understanding or knowledge that means the Romans don't know what to pray for, then what is it? Well, if we put these verses into the context of Romans 8, I think we get a clearer picture. We saw last week, didn't we, that the Christian will suffer. The Christian will have to wait for the glory to be revealed. And in this time, in that time, it can be hard. Hard to understand what's going on. Hard to process what is happening. And so hard to know what we should or even could pray for. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you've really felt that yourself personally. But rather than those times and that discourage us or cause us to doubt, Paul here gives us a much better reality. In those times where we don't know what to pray for, the assurance he gives us is that it doesn't matter. Have a look at verse 26 and 27 again. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We know, don't we, that it is good to pray. It shows our dependence on God. But when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. To intercede means to act for, to act on our behalf. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit is intervening for us with groans verse 26, that words cannot express. I think that that part of verse 26 is simply reaffirming the reality of our state as sufferers. We don't know what to pray for. We can't express what we think or feel in words, and so the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. 
And the encouragement is, is that there is no one more qualified. If Anna, my wife, was trying to bake a cake, but she got stuck or incapacitated or Lydia started, our child started screaming for her, I would gallantly step in to try and help. I would intercede for her. But despite my GCSE in food technology, it would be disastrous. However, if Anna got stuck baking a cake and Mary Berry or Prue Leith rocked up to our house to finish it off for her, the result would be incredibly different. They can intercede because they're qualified, they're experts, they know what they're doing. And the Spirit intercedes for us as God's people. Verse 27 reminds us that the Spirit knows God's will. That makes sense. He is a person of the Trinity after all. And it means that the spirit, as he intercedes, is the right person for the job. He knows God intimately. He knows what is going on in the world. He knows what God is doing. And so the intercession by the spirit is aligned with God's will. To make us more like Jesus. To sanctify us, which we'll see more about later on. But the point is is that the Spirit interceding for us should give us confidence and assurance. Even as we don't know what to pray for, we are being sanctified. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So as we suffer and wait, the Spirit is interceding. And as we suffer and wait, secondly, God is working for our good. Now, I wonder if you, when you were growing up, you really wanted to be like someone. Um, here's me, aged about four, I think. Um, there's a photo on the screen. And what you might see in this photo is an ordinary child sat on a red bike. Does everyone see that? Good group kids, can you see that? Do you agree that that's the photo? Yeah? Well, I'm afraid you're wrong. Because actually what you're looking at right there is Michael Schumacher sat on his red Ferrari, quoting lines to his brother from Formula One commentator Murray Walker. That was my dream as a child. I wanted to be like Michael Schumacher. I had the first name for it. I wanted to win Formula One races in the shining red of Ferrari. In fact, I was chatting to my dad about this yesterday. I loved it so much that apparently I asked to learn German when I was in primary school so I could speak like him. Instead, Apparently, I had to settle for putting on a dodgy German accent instead. And I also refused to have any other coloured bike until I was 12 years old. But maybe that idea resonates with you from your childhood, or maybe even now. Um, I do, there is a part of me that would still like to be Michael Schumacher. Maybe you've had or have someone who you want to emulate, who you want to be like, a sports star, a film star, your favourite book character, your parent or your grandparent. And becoming that like them excited you. You wanted to experience what they experienced, have what they have, be like them in how they are, how they act, what they stand for. Well, hold on to that, though. Hold on to that as we see Paul making another big claim in verse 28. Have a look down at verse 28 with me. Paul says, And we know... That in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now it's a big claim. 
because of the situation that the church in Rome, and indeed Christians everywhere, find themselves in as suffering waiters. And maybe our temptation with a verse like this is to nuance it, to say, well, it applies in situation X, but not situation Y. To say that there are caveats to this statement, that we need to clarify it with a but at the end of the sentence. God works for the good of those who love him, but not now. Paul's claim is big. And if we believe the Bible to be God's word, we also must know that it is true. Paul's statement is a big one, but it is true. And the point of this statement, again, in the context of Romans 8, is to bring assurance in the midst of suffering and waiting. And so if we get a proper understanding of what Paul is saying here, then hopefully that will be our outcome. We will have assurance and confidence. Paul says, in all things, God is working for our good. Let's break this sentence down. Firstly, God is working. God is so big and is so sovereign. He rules the world. He holds the whole created order together. But he's also intimately active in all things that go on in the world. And as we heard earlier from Neil and Rika, when suffering comes, that truth can be hard to believe. We'd love for God's work to be to somehow reveal himself in a vision. We talk about acts of God, how great and how much confidence would it give us if we saw something like that. Now, I'm not for one minute going to limit God, saying that he couldn't do that. But the pattern set throughout the Bible is that God is at work sovereignly through ordinary human means. Through the giving of a promise to an ordinary old man in Genesis 12. Through choosing an ordinary looking shepherd boy to be his king in 2 Samuel through the horrific acts of a group of men who convict an innocent man to death by hanging him on a Roman cross. God is at work in our lives, in the ordinary, everyday things we see around us, through his people. And again, that should give us assurance. We're not forgotten about. We're not ignored. We're not God's playthings. No, God is intimately involved in all things. God is at work. And he's at work for a purpose. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He's at work for the good of those who love him. What is the good? It could be saying, Paul could be saying here, that God is at work to make all things that happen to the Christian good. That being a Christian means that everything that happens to you is good from God. Now, if that is true, then that truth hits very much headlong when suffering comes. It hits head on with suffering. Paul has already acknowledged that hardship and suffering is hard and sad. And we must do that too. As a church family, as we walk through life together, we have to acknowledge the toughness and sadness of suffering. 
All things that happen can't be good. As we know we're in a fallen world where sin happens, where life is tough. We understand the world we live in and so we have to expect that suffering will come. The hope, as we've seen, Romans 8 verse 18, is that there will be a time when there will be no more suffering. But as we wait for Jesus' return, sin and suffering is a real reality. So it can't be that Paul thinks God is going to make everything that happens to the Christian good. Could it be that in each and every situation, that each situation has some form of good to it? Kind of like the whole, it'll all work out all right in the end type of view. For example, if you crash your car and write it off, this view would say, don't worry about that, just be joyful about the new car that you're going to buy. There's there's a veneer of assurance there, isn't there? A layer of confidence, but it makes light of the suffering. Well, this maybe gets us a little bit closer to what Paul means, but again, there's a problem. To view life like this would mean that we don't allow ourselves to fully face up to the reality that we are suffering waiters. So what is the good in verse 28? Well, the answer is found in verse 29. Have a look down and we'll read from verse 28 again. See if you can spot it. Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you spot it? God is working for the good of those who love him. And the good is verse 29, that we're being conformed in all those situations to be like Jesus. It's not that every situation is good, nor is it that everything will work out for good. But in the midst of the mess of everyday life, in the midst of suffering, In the midst of hardship, God is at work in all of those things to make us more like Jesus, to sanctify us, to set us apart. And again, that should hopefully give us assurance because God cares about our suffering, but he's also using these times to make us more like Jesus. It's so much richer then the things will work out in the end view. God is growing us to be more like his son. That's his will for his people. And as that happens, it means that we're able to persevere in the Christian life as we wait for Jesus to return. And this really is good. I hope that we can see that. To be more like the Lord Jesus is a good thing. We're being made to be more like someone who resisted sin, who was kind and gracious and generous, who didn't give in to temptation, even when face to face with the devil. It means that we are being made more and more to be who we were meant to be, sons of God, his image bearers. And so even though being Michael Schumacher would be great, being like Jesus is infinitely greater I wanted to speak like Schumacher, act like Schumacher, be like him in all respects. And that's what I should be longing for with Jesus, to be like him. 
to follow him and enjoy what he enjoys so that we will enjoy the glory to come. God's will is that we are conformed to be more like him. And that is exciting. As we open up God's word, as we rest in the goodness of his promises and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, be assured. That assurance is happening all the time. Maybe we struggle to see how that is true at certain points in life. But know that if you love Jesus, then it is happening. Paul tells us right here. God is growing us in all things to be like Jesus. But not just my good, though, in my life. Romans, remember, was written to the church in Rome. God is at work in all things, and so the church, the people of God, are being made like Jesus too. As we walk alongside each other in the midst of suffering, God is at work collectively to make us like Jesus. Even if we're looking in at people's lives, God is still at work in all things for our good. Paul, though, at this point, lifts our gaze, though. He lifts it from our own life, each of us being made more like Jesus and, and from church life to the purpose behind it all. Have a look again at verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The reason God is conforming us all to be like Jesus is for Jesus' sake that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, the firstborn among many fellow Christians. That is why he has died on the cross, so that people can enjoy relationship with God, be united to him and be fellow heirs. As we saw earlier on in Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. That's what God is doing in the world right now. He's growing his family through faith, so that we may be co-heirs with Christ. And that is why Paul can state in verse 28, categorically, that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So we've had the assurance that the Spirit is interceding for us when we don't know what to pray for. We've had the assurance that God is working for our good to make us like Jesus so that we can share in the future glory, no matter what the situation. And thirdly, Paul is going to show us that we can have confidence because God's purpose is unstoppable. This starts uh, in verse 29, so uh, let's read from there. And group, group children, see if you can spot the chain of events that happen in these verses. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We get a chain of events 
um, that once the first thing in the chain has happened, the next inevitably follows. It's like pushing a snowball down the side of a hill. Once that starts, it's going to keep going and keep growing to its conclusion. And the conclusion that Paul states is that God will bring his children to glory. But how do we get to that point? Well, verse 29 tells us firstly that God foreknows people. And those he foreknew, he also predestined. We see God's sovereignty, his bigness, in that he knows people and he predestines them. God is active in salvation. It's an important truth to remember. In, uh, in Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul goes to great lengths to show that mankind is hopeless without the gospel, without grace. It takes God stepping into this world to bring about salvation. And it's his predestining that brings about the split between those people who love God and those who do not. God's not big in the fact that he just knows what the difference is, but he actually causes that difference through predestining people. So the first step is God for new people, then he predestines people, and the next step that happens in real historical time for people like me and you, we are called Paul's going to elaborate on this uh, more in chapter 9 to 11, which you might want to read when you get home, um, where he talks about Jews and Gentiles, how people are grafted into God's household. Uh, The calling happens as people hear the gospel proclaimed, hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his sovereignty, all those who have been predestined will hear this call. Now, a temptation at this point might be to say, if God has predestined people, why bother proclaiming Jesus? Well, I think the answer to that is that God works, as we saw earlier, through ordinary human means. There is no lessening of the need of preaching because we believe in God's sovereignty in predestination. Paul certainly didn't think that, did he? Otherwise, we wouldn't have half the New Testament. God foreknows his people. God predestines them. God calls them. Fourthly, those who are called are justified. They are declared right before God. And those who are declared right before God, fifthly, God has glorified. And that might be a bit of a surprise to us. Paul uses the past tense there. Those he has justified, he also glorified. Because if you've been here with us for the last few weeks in Romans, um, you'll remember these words, for I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he also said, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We're waiting For the glory of the sons of God to be revealed. But then suddenly, verse 30, Paul talks about being glorified. What's going on? Well, I think the simplest answer in this case is also the best. And it's this. Paul is so convinced of that chain being unstoppable that he can confidently assert that if the chain has started then the glory will most certainly come. It's the same logic that is used about sons in chapter 8. Verse 16 states that we are God's sons. Sonship has been accomplished. 
But then verses 19 and 23, that sonship is yet to be revealed. Paul is certain of our future glory, so certain that he can write that we have been glorified. There's not many things in this world that you can confidently assert will happen. I think the old saying from Benjamin Franklin is that the only things certain in life are death and taxes. But Paul says, for those who trust Jesus, who love him, their future is totally secure. Paul would say Jesus is going to return. The sons of God will be glorified. Because God has foreknown, he has predestined, he has called, he has justified and glorified them. And next week, uh, we're going to see Paul go on to say, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God is working out his purpose for those who love him. He will bring them to glory. If you're a Christian here today, then rejoice in that. So as we suffer and as we wait, why can we have assurance as we follow Jesus? It's because the Spirit is interceding for us. God is working for our good in all things as he makes us more like Jesus. And that purpose to bring us to glory is unstoppable. And so as we conclude... If we're someone who loves Jesus, then we can have complete assurance as we face life in all its brokenness and hardship and mess. And although we don't diminish that suffering, these truths hopefully give us a glorious perspective on them. Rather than the mess of life causing us to doubt God's goodness, to lead us to doubt his promises, we know that as Christians we can respond to the suffering, the frustration, the failures with certainty. With more than just a veneer of assurance, but with a solid assurance that God is at work. That the Spirit is interceding for us. That God's glorious purpose will be revealed and worked out. So how can we respond in these situations knowing this assurance? Well, why not ask each other that question over tea and coffee later on? But if you're not a Christian here this morning, then I wonder how your view, particularly of suffering, is different. What do you do when life is hard? What sort of person are you becoming? The Christian can answer, I am becoming more like Jesus through God's grace as we wait hopefully for his return. But if that isn't true for you, then what do you do? Do you feel bitter or angry or discouraged? Whatever your response, the offer of Jesus is there for us all. Through his death, we can enjoy being called heirs of God. We can have assurance. We can have confidence in the midst of life. We'd love for you to recognise that and trust these truths of Jesus for yourself. Do stick around for tea and coffee later. Come and chat to me or to Michael afterwards. But for those who love Jesus, 
As we suffer and wait, we know that the Spirit is interceding for us, that God is working for our good to make us more like Jesus, and we know that God's purpose can never be stopped. The Christian life is totally worth it because of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. Father, thank you that we can know this confidence and assurance in life because Jesus has died on the cross to bring us to sonship. Father, please help us in the midst of life to keep clinging on to these truths. Thank you that we can know that as we suffer and wait, that the Spirit intercedes for us, that you are working for our good to make us more like Jesus, to bring us to glory. Please help us to hold on to those truths each and every day. Help us to encourage each other as a church family to keep clinging on to those truths, particularly when life is hard and tough. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.